Tell somebody, say praise the Lord this morning. God is good. What an understatement. Come on, God is good to us. So give your neighbor a high five. Tell him you're looking good, and we are glad you're here this morning. Hey, we have a real treat this morning. Dr. Rick Scarborough is with us. He is a, a pastor at a church in Houston for many years, and then God launched him out because he just saw how our culture was just falling off the edge, and he's opened many doors. He's a voice in America today calling the church to lead in a revival in our America, calling this nation to return to her godly roots. And uh, I know God's going to speak to you through, through you, uh, this message today. Let me encourage you to open your hearts and give a big hand to our guest, Dr. Rick Scarborough. God bless you. I am delighted to be back. I had the privilege of meeting your pastor and, and uh, be a part of this congregation a while back. My wife was with me then. I wish she could have been on this trip. Only problem is I left uh, last uh, Monday morning and have been to Orlando and uh, Washington, D.C. and San Diego and back here since. I will see her uh, two and a half hours after we walk out the door of a restaurant. I'll promise you I'm looking forward to getting back home. I live, by the way, in Nacogdoches, Texas. I, I love traveling. People ask me where I'm from, and I say Nacogdoches, and they, it's always kind of funny to watch them try to say that after me. It's, as you probably know, it's a, an Indian name. He had a twin brother named Natchitoches. Uh, his, their father, Chief Caddo, uh, when it came time to pass on, divided his kingdom and sent Natchitoches east, and he founded Natchitoches, Louisiana, or that's the, the origin of the name for that city. And uh, Nacogdoches uh, moved to the west, and Nacogdoches, Texas, was born. Uh, we now play uh, Northwestern State University in football every year. Our university is Stephen F. Austin, and and exchange, uh, or, or I should say, the winner goes home with Chief Caddo, uh, the the largest prize awarded between two schools that compete on an annual basis in the country. I went to Stephen F. Austin to play football there back before face mask. Uh, in fact, we were using leather helmets back in those days. Nobody laughs. They, they believe that could be true. <laughs> it wasn't quite that far back, but I got tired eating cafeteria food, and so I got to looking for a local girl I could go home with, and I found Tommy, and I've been going home with her ever since. By the way, Tommy is a girl. I need to clarify that. I didn't used to have to clarify that, but I do now. Uh, I, I, one reason I love this place is because I've grown to love your pastor and his wife. Uh, they're very special people, uh, special because they take their ministry seriously, special because they don't uh, equivocate on God's Word, uh, special because they planted their life in one place. You know, if I have a regret in ministry, and you can't, every decision's made in the context of that period, you can't look back and change the past, and if, you, if you're one of those susceptible to looking in the back, always looking back and regretting, uh, you'll stumble the rest of your life. When I use the word regret, uh, I use it in a context of explaining a, a greater point. I, uh, I live in some regret because had I stayed at First Baptist Church Pearland, I'd been in my 23rd year this year, and there's just something about longevity. Boy, that's what I love about your pastor. He planted his life in one place. You know, you can get away with anything for about two or three years, and that may explain why preachers move every two or three years. Rare. The average is that high because there are men who stay for their whole life. I guarantee you. I watch pastors there in East Texas, and they swap pulpits in uh, Nacogdoches County about every 
12 to 15 months. The same group of guys, uh, when one pulpit opens, they just kind of shift. It's like moving, it's like uh, musical chairs. Uh, because, you know, uh, if, you're not, if you're not living it, people smell that real quick. Uh, right now, Linnell is going through the challenge of her life. And because of that, that means her, her uh, mate is going through it. The two are joined together. They're one. And I hope you take serious your charge as a church family to pray for them and to encourage them. Uh, eight years ago... Uh, I walked in the back bedroom of our home after my wife had screamed and found that our daughter who had been ill for seven years had, had expired in 50, in, within the 15 minutes of the last time I had checked on her because she was very ill. And uh, I will never forget the, the, the pain of the loss. I am telling you it uh, was unlike anything I have ever, ever experienced. Uh, the only difference in today, eight years later than the first uh, two years, is now I can pick when and where I'm going to cry. When my mind starts thinking about Catherine, I simply catch it and we go in another direction. And uh, as recent as two nights ago, I wept thinking about Catherine. Now, why do I say that? With all of medical science, that's always looming in the back of your pastor and his wife's mind. When, he, when he's looking at you and encouraging you, uh, when they're praying for you, when they're uh, going out of their way to meet your needs, always on their shoulder is Satan whispering what could happen. In church, you can prevent that from happening. We need intercessors. We need people who take this serious. How many of you have battled cancer in your life? Would you raise your hand? I would suspect that several of you have. And you know what that, that report is. I don't know. But I'm telling you, I believe part of my charge in being here is to encourage somebody to say, I'm going to be the one that rounds up a group of people. We're going to pray every day for Linnell. And somebody else is going to say, I'm going to take charge and get some men and or women, and we're going to pray every day for John. And I, I, that's my calling until we get that report that it is gone, never to return. Folks, listen. Jehovah Rophe, Jehovah Rapha, some pronounce it. Uh, Moses took the children of Israel, led them right through that uh, sea, and then saw the sea crash on the Pharaoh and his armies. They saw that deliverance, and it wasn't days later than that band of wandering Jews were despairing of death because they were in the desert, and their lips were parched, and there was no water. And when they found the water, it was too bitter to drink. And so Moses, the intercessor, went before God and prayed. And you know what God did? He showed him a tree. And he said, fell that tree into the water, and he did. And when the water, or the, the and when the and when the tree was felled into the water, the waters became sweet, the sweetest water they'd ever drank. You see, all of life is tempered by the tree, the cross, and whatever the bitter drag is that you've been called to drink, if you re, if you see the healing that's in the cross, it becomes sweet. Your pastor has preached for twenty three years in this pulpit faithfully. Now he and Linnell are having to live what they've preached. You're a, you're a privileged 
church because you're seeing that Christianity works. Now, I want you to seriously consider your role in prayer. And then we have the invitation while we're ministering grace to those who are lost or needy. If God has called you, you may already be involved in the prayer ministry, but if God has said, I am the one, I, I just feel impressed I'm the one to, to make sure that there's a group praying for Pastor John, or if you're the one that God has impressed, I am the one to be responsible to make sure there's a group praying every day for Linnell, then I want you to come up and tell me that. Father, I pray that this not be forgotten, because I know that the fervent, prevailing prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. And Lord, uh, I believe that you want this church to minister to this pastor and his wife uh, more than uh, just uh, verbal encouragement. Lord, raise up the warriors. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You know why that's so relevant to me, folks? The reason I had to uh, pass up on a turkey hunt with your pastor, which we had planned for a long time. Um, he's a turkey hunter. I, I've only been spring turkey hunting one time. I, was, I, I, I mean, for three days in a row, my, my iPhone, a note popped up said turkey hunt. Reminded me I didn't get to do it. Because Jim Garlow, who is a friend, dear friend like your pastor is, whose wife battled cancer for nine years, excuse me, five years and ten months, which was four years longer than the doctors gave them any hope of survival. And her cancer was 80% of those who contracted it, it uh, finally takes our life. But I flew from the National Day of Prayer in Washington, D.C. to San Diego to attend her funeral two days ago. And boy, I saw the pain in that pastor. When we grieved for Catherine, I went home with my wife to grieve. Pastor Jim went home alone that night. I do not want I don't want that to happen in this church. Do you? Well, then I, I don't have, I don't be more clear. But there has to be some people who say, this is my charge. Amen? Now, let's look at our Bibles. Would you stand in honor of God's Word? Turn in your Bible to Revelation 12, and then, if you will, mark that, because after we go to another passage, a couple of other passages, this is where we're going to end up. But I want to read this as our text. Look at what the Bible says in verse 7. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was their place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth. And his angels, demons, were cast out with him. Now then I, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren, who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. Now look at verse 11. I'm reading from New King James. Whatever translation you're reading, you just read it aloud so it'll get in your heart. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, 
And they did not love their lives even unto death. Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, I pray you anoint this hour and bring much glory to your throne as a result. Thank you for the praise and worship. Thank you for the testimony of this church. Now, Lord, we open our hearts to receive truth, and we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated. You know, um, I learned how to do email here about three months ago. That's not totally true, but almost as true. And then I got in the technological age. I, I carry this iPad with me everywhere because it's, it's just, it, it, I, I have everything I own in it. That's why some of you guys who are helping me need to follow me wherever I go and make sure I don't leave it somewhere. Uh, up on the screen, there should be a picture of a church. Not that. Boy, that's a bald head. We've got to fix that. Put that picture of the church up, Amy, if you, there it is. I want you to look at that church. Isn't that pretty? Well, that's called, it is pretty. It cost you about $50 million to buy it. That is the church painted by a famous painter, Vincent Van Gogh, in the last year of his life. Now, in the, last, the paintings that they were painted later in his career uh, have gone for as much as $82.5 million. I don't know what that is a month, but that's a lot. Uh, this painting is simply called The Church. I want you to look carefully at it. And uh, if you're really sh sharper than I was when I saw it the first time, you'll notice something. What's missing? Well, the, the cross is missing. Good, good, good observation. That's not. What else is missing? Somebody said front. Anybody see any doors? There's no doors. You see the road going to the church? Instead of going straight to the church, it forks, and that one pilgrim is walking around the church. He was painted by a man who had been abandoned by his own church. What is not known about Vincent van Gogh is that his father was a Dutch Reformed pastor, very well known and very uh, effective in ministry, a godly man. His grandfather before that was also a pastor. And it was just kind of understood that that's the direction Vince would go. That's what he prepared for. Got out of college, went to seminary, was trained in the Dutch Reformed movement. He was appointed to his first church. And he went there and fell in love with the people. What makes a pastor effective, by the way. But unlike where he'd been reared, pastors in those days were the professional class. They were like lawyers. They were well paid and lived very well. But his first assignment was to a tiny town in Belgium of coal miners. This is the 1870s. Uh, the lifespan of a coal miner was not much. The environment was uh, nothing short of hell on earth. Uh, he'd never seen poverty like that. And because of his love of Jesus and his love for his people, he sold every possession that he had, even down to his last change of clothes. He kept an alternate change of clothes, but he sold his clothes as well. And moved in a hovel just like the coal miners. Well, I guarantee you, you can imagine what that meant to those coal miners. Church attendance was up. The church was growing. Months into his ministry, as was the 
tradition, the superintendent over that district came to check on the new young pastor. I mean, they didn't have iPhones and they didn't have any means of communication. So he made his rounds. And when he came to that coal mining town, no one was in the parsonage. Found out that the young preacher was living like a pauper. He reported back to the officials that Vince Van Gogh was an embarrassment to the church, that he had denigrated the office of pastor, and he was summarily fired for, in effect, living the Christian life. He never went, uh, he never uh, uh, participated in the organized church again. His own brother uh, kept letters reflecting the deep abiding love for Jesus that Vince Van Gogh maintained. But he went into deep, dark depression because he'd failed. He turned to his second love, painting. But in his lifetime, nobody wanted to buy his paintings. At the age of 37, they found him dead of a gunshot wound, never found the gun, but most people believe it was self-inflicted. Somebody apparently found the body, took the gun. Died of failure. In 1890, the year of his death, he painted that picture. And you have to wonder, nobody knows, but it could not have been the fact that the church, organized church, not Jesus, had so abandoned him that he saw the church as irrelevant. Those who were in didn't want to get out, and those who were out could not get in. And folks, uh, therein lies the parable of the church today. Most people find the church to be totally irrelevant. Why not? Of those who actively attend church, according to George Gallup, only 20, excuse me, 19% of those who go to church regularly now embrace absolute truth. They'll, they'll tell you Jesus is the Savior. But when hard-pressed, they will not stand up uh, because of the scorn they might get and say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. How dare you say Muslims aren't going to heaven? They'll tell you the Ten Commandments are a great guideline for life, but they live their life in such a way that they believe thou shalt not commit adultery normally. Thou shalt not lie. Most of the time. Income tax time. Thou shalt not covet. Until somebody gets a newer car, a nicer house, or a prettier wife. You see, absolutes in America are a thing of the past. And people today see the church as increasingly irrelevant. Government takes care of the poor. Government provides the handouts. Who needs the church? And you have to understand that while your pastor reminded you a while ago, take your Bible and read it every day. There are many churches today that will, will never open a Bible. Pastors preach from poetry or the latest book. There are no prophets standing up and saying, Thus saith the Lord. Uh, our seminaries are teaching our preachers 
a new theology of, of uh, practicality. If you want to fill your church up, don't offend anybody. Make them feel good. Pastor, would you like to have everybody that's walked away from this church because they got offended by the truth in the past? Uh, well, I don't mean with that kind of heart of rebellion, but wouldn't it have been nice if they'd have said yes to the Lord and stuck around, helped you reach this city for Christ. But they do. They just kind of melt away. My favorite preacher, a preacher for whom we have named our Pastor of the Year Award, Charles Finney was training to be an evangel excuse me, a, a lawyer in the days in which he went to school. Blackstone's commentary of the law was the standard in the educational process. Blackstone built his whole curriculum around the Ten Commandments, the Bible, the essence of truth. And in reading Blackstone's commentary on the law, this young lawyer-to-be was converted to Christ and became the catalyst for the second great awakening that led to the courage of pastors to throw off the bondage of slavery. Oh, how we need a Charles Finney today. Here's what Charles Finney said. If there is a decay of conscience... The pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press lacks moral discernment, the pulpit is responsible for it. By the way, the pulpit is responsible for it is the chorus. I want you to sing it with me. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in Christianity, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. Now listen to this last part of this, of this soliloquy. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. America today has a church problem. As the church goes, so goes the nation. But now listen carefully. The problem is not the church. The problem is in the pulpit. Because you see, as the pastor goes, so goes the church. You find me a soul winning pastor, I'll show you a soul winning church. You find me a praying pastor, I'll show you a church that emphasizes prayer. You show me a missions minded pastor, I'll show you a church that's mission minded. You show me a biblical preacher, I'll show you a church that's all of that. You know, I have a friend of mine who attends a church who's trying to get me in that pulpit. But he said, Pastor, you've got to get your sermons down to 15 minutes. You go one minute over 15 minutes and you'll never be invited back. That church runs 30,000 plus. Needless to say, I've never been invited. Folks, we're under assault in this culture. Your pastor's familiar with it. I don't know if you've used any of the illustrations here or not. I asked the pastor if he had seen it. But wallbuilders.org 
is the website of David Barton. How many of you know who David Barton is? He's a Christian historian. You watch Glenn Beck, he's on there every week. Uh, most knowledgeable man, perhaps, in America regarding our culture and our history. He has the largest library of original source books dating back to the founding of the country of anybody in the, in the world other than the Library of Congress. David Barton documents on his website about 18 pages of acts of hostility toward Christianity that have been perpetrated by the current occupier of the White House of the United States. Now, folks, that's just a fact. It's, go read it, if you will. I've got them copied. And in this uh, little book here, I, I couldn't read it in a 30-minute message to you. Some of them very subtle and some of them very overt. Some of them likely even illegal acts in that the Constitution has not given them the power to do what he's done. That doesn't seem to matter anymore. And I'm here to tell you that when the Supreme Court on June rules that marriage is no longer to be defined as one man and one woman, ideally for life, overturning more than 6,000 years of civilization and an institution not founded by man, predating the law itself, the law, law of Moses, an institution that God ordained and defined as one man and one woman in a union, a covenant union, symbolizing the union of the church and the Lord Jesus. That marriage for all practical purposes will no longer mean anything and the foundation of this civilization will have been destroyed by the new kings of America. I'm telling you right now, lawsuits are lining up to sue for the right to polygamy. And there will be no grounds for which to stop it. There are people marching in the streets of this country demanding the right to have sex with children if the children agree to it. We've already had a judge tell us that parents have no right to know and the government has no right to restrict any child of any age from going into a pharmacy and picking up a an abortion product that on the day after they've had sex kills that tiny fetus. That's where we are. But now listen carefully. The judges are not the enemy. The president's not the enemy. Politicians are not the enemy. Do you know who the enemy is? That's right. And I'm telling you, he hates this country. The uh, one world government can't be set up until this country is destroyed and our sovereignty is destroyed. Uh, as long as, there's a, as we're pledging allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, one nation under God, that can't happen if Satan is going to perfect his ultimate plan. 
So we need to understand that the real enemy, the driving force, is hell, Satan. I want you to turn with me, and I want you to see in Ezekiel 28 that when Satan was created, he was created in perfection. Pastor, I, I, I'm, I'm developing, well, there's a disease of forgetfulness, but I can't remember what it is. But did you tell me 10, 15, I know we're, we're talking public business. He told me at 10, 15, I would be shot if I wasn't finished. So you need to, you got to listen quick. Uh, no, I, I ask him because I know there's another, certain, another worship time. And I know that people who come in the early service come specifically because they know they'll get out on time. So I got to be finished. I'm, I'm joking, folks. <clears throat> if you were smart, you'd come on Saturday night, and you could be on the lake right now. Amen? Listen to what it says. Here's what I want you to see. In Ezekiel chapter 28, by the way, anytime a pastor calls the text twice, that means he hasn't yet turned there. Uh, there's I, Isaiah 14 is also a passage that you need to to be thinking about. We're going to look there in just a moment. But in Ezekiel 28, the Bible says these words. Moreover, the, verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation of the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God Almighty, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering, the sargis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of thy tibrays, or timbrels and pipes, was prepared for you in the day you were created. You are the anointed cherub that covers. Here's what I want you to know about our enemy. He was created in absolute perfection. When you read this passage, this is no king. This is something far beyond that because this is the anointed cherub that covers. Now, I want you to understand something. He was beautiful. But not really. The Bible says he was that he was, he was covered with every precious gem there was. Uh, ladies, ladies love diamonds. They love sapphires and all of these jewels. But you know, you take a handful of diamonds, and wouldn't you like to take a handful of diamonds? Take them in a closet, put the diamonds in one hand and ordinary rocks in the other, and by feel, you can't tell any difference. What makes a diamond beautiful? It's a natural prism. You hold it up, and it, become, it takes all the inherent qualities of the light, and it breaks it down, and it's beautiful. Satan was beautiful, Lucifer as he was known, because he was the anointed cherub that covereth. He was hovering over Jesus. The Bible says in heaven there'll be no need for sun or moon, because Jesus will light up the radiance of heaven. And when the angelic host saw Lucifer... They saw a reflection of Jesus. Folks, there's a whole sermon that can be developed there. When you're in the right relationship to Jesus, you become a reflection of Christ. And regardless of your physical attributes, you're beautiful. What is more lovely than a 90-year-old saint crippled with arthritis who has loved Jesus her whole life and spends her time in intercession? What is more beautiful than that? 
But you know what? People saw Lucifer, saw that beauty, and they bragged on him. He was created in perfection, but he was corrupted by pride. If you go to Isaiah chapter 14, and you'll trust me, I'll just quote it. It says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Why did you lift up your heart? And then it says, You said, I will exalt my stars above the stars of God. I will be like the most highly. And if you read in Isaiah 14, on five successive phrases, he starts by saying, I will, I will, I will, I will. You know what Satan fell from heaven? What corrupted him? It was his pride. He had an eye problem. All he could think about was how great he was. He even had the arrogance to think he could overthrow God. And We go over to the book of Revelation where we started, and we see that there was a day in eternity before when a war broke out in heaven. And I'm telling you, God finally had enough. He rose up, and with one swoop of his right hand, Michael the archangel, the warring archangel, cast down Lucifer and every angel that followed, a third of the heavenly host, and they found themselves on earth. But they came down with a vengeance. They know they've already been defeated. They hate God. You're created in the similitude of God. Every human being reminds them of God and what they once had. You and I know that the greatest pain that can be inflicted on a parent is to go after one of the children. And I'm telling you, Satan is lurking like a roaring lion, trying to kill and destroy and and, and, and finally taken to hell as many of God's created children as he can. He was created in perfection. He was corrupted by pride. But you mark this down. He is continuing in power. How do you defeat the enemy? The Bible says once Satan was thrown down, that in heaven they overcame. Look at verse 11, Revelation chapter 12. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives even unto death. A decision to trust the blood. A declaration that they had. And a commitment that meant, even if it cost me my life, I will not back down. And I'm here to announce to you, church family, we're moving into an era where it could in the next 20 years, maybe sooner, literally require that. In this room, there's just two kinds of people, saved, lost. Now, when I look out here, I see black and white. I see tall and short. I see thin and not so thin. Now, male, female, Republican, Democrat. We categorize people and oftentimes reject people based upon those characterizations. But I'm here to tell you, when the Lord Jesus looks into this room, He only sees saved, lost. You know how to make sure you're saved? You have to, first of all, make a decision not to trust the church or the pastor or your good works, but the blood of the Lamb. If you make that kind of decision, you will not be ashamed. You'll declare it with your lips. Jesus said, confess me before men. I'll confess you before the Father. And the proof that you made it 
will be in the way you live your life. People say to me, I die for Jesus. Folks, if you won't tithe, I assure you, you won't die. If you won't open your Bible, don't deceive yourself into thinking you'll die. You see, folks, the way to prepare for dying for Jesus is by living for Jesus. Would you bow your head, close your eyes? How many in this room can say, Preacher, I'm not perfect, don't claim to be, but I remember the day when I made a decision to trust the blood of the Lamb. I remember that I, even though I'm shy perhaps and it was hard, that I, I, I walked down the aisle of the church, I, I went and told the preacher, I declared it with my lips. And preacher, God is my witness. I have, my life now reflects my dedication. I'm walking the talk. If you know that, you know that with certainty, would you raise your hand as your testimony? I know I'm saved. You have trusted the blood. You've declared it with your lips. You're walking the walk. You may put your hands down, folks. Scattered all across are people who didn't raise their hand. Oh, listen. If you didn't raise your hand because you couldn't and be honest, you're the reason I'm here. You're the reason that this church was built. You're the whole purpose for Jesus going to Calvary. Don't take another step without Jesus. In a moment, we're going to have Ordinary people who have made extraordinary commitments to God who want to pray for you. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, walk down and take one of these by the hand and say, I don't, know, I don't understand all of it, but I know this. I need Jesus. I want to quit playing the game. I want to leave here knowing my sins have been washed away. My life is brand new. Father, I don't know who they are, but you do. There are people in this room without Jesus. Let today be the day they give their heart to Christ. I'm going to ask our pastor and others who have, have been appointed to pray to come and stand across the front. Pastor, you, I want you to take control of the invitation, but I want to urge you that if you couldn't raise your hand, come and talk to one of these.